Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles tonight to where we left off last time, the book of Micah, chapter 3. We covered 1 and 2, and now we're into chapter 3 of the book of Micah. So if you don't know where that is, find Jonah and turn right, and you'll be there. Or find Isaiah and go down a few streets and turn right, and you'll see. Micah chapter 3. Actually, we didn't really finish chapter 2 like we wanted to. Now, this is a Bible study, so it would really help if you had a Bible to read. Now, some of you didn't bring them with you, so you have people sitting next to you who would love to share the Bible with you. Or, if they don't look too hospitable. We have Bibles in the backs of the chairs, scattered or underneath. You can grab one of those and follow along. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, it is so great to be a part of a family, a spiritual family on this earth, knowing that we're marching through this world on our way to glory. It's wonderful for the companionship, the fellowship, the camaraderie, the encouragement. Lord, also because we get to learn your truths together. And tonight, as we open up our Bibles, we also open up our hearts. We need a word from heaven. We have issues and we have questions. We have joys. Some have sorrows. We need your Spirit to speak through your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we give ourselves to the study of it, that you might speak to us. And then, as was already prayed, after tonight, after this lesson, then speak through us. In Jesus' name, amen. The name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Or, if you prefer, who is like Jehovah? His parents must have given him the name wanting him to be a billboard of sorts, that there's no one like God. He is absolutely unique. So he bore the name Micah, Mikah, who is like Yahweh. Micah is very similar to another name, Michael. Michael is just like Micah, except his name means who is like El, who is like God. So this unique prophet brings a unique message, and his name means who is like the Lord. To refresh your memory, in this book, Micah brings three sermons, or three teachings, three messages. Or you could look at it as three installments of a single message to God's people. And you can tell the beginning of each sermon by the same word, the word hear, listen. So chapter 1 begins here, and chapter 1 and 2 form the first message. Chapter 3 begins here, now. And chapter 3, 4, and 5 form the second message. 
Chapter 6 also begins here, now. And chapter 6 and 7 forms the third message. So you have a prophet saying, listen up. Take heed. Yo, check it out. Getting people's attention to hear, listen to God's Word. Now, in each of these three messages is a combination of elements, you remember. Uh, The prophet gives an admonition, first of all. Then he gives an announcement, second. And third, he gives the assurance. First is the admonition because of their sin. You've blown it. In case you've forgotten, here it is. He admonishes them and names their sin. Second is the announcement of God's judgment because of their sin. And third is the assurance of what God will promise in spite of their sin. So you've got bad news and you've got good news. And so it is common for this prophet to share his messages like that. On one hand, I've got bad news. On the other hand, I've got good news. Here's the storm report. Bad stuff is coming ahead. Then he will quickly turn, and it's like the sun peeks through the clouds, and glory shines through. This is not uncommon. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and now Micah all use this same style of sharing truth. Mixing the good with the bad. And so, last time we met in chapters 1 and 2, we sort of ended on a minor note. He, he sings in the minor key, a very solemn, sour dirge, if you will. But he ends chapter 2, and we really didn't get to expound on it much, with a sustained major note. Good news, the assurance of messianic blessing. And again, that's common through many of the prophets. It is also common with his style. Or to put it in modern terms, look at it like when you watch a movie. Have you ever watched an old black and white movie? And it's sort of slow to you, it drags on. You go, man, this is hard. It's like the camera stays at the same angle for like 10 minutes. A modern movie is different. We have trained ourselves to not tolerate thinking, focusing for a long period of time. So movie makers today do RTCs, rapid technical changes. They know that to keep the audience's attention, you want to change the camera angles and then even give weird camera angles so people go, oh, I've never seen that before. That's, that's kind of cool. The prophet gives rapid technical changes. He'll focus on the present peek into the future, and then end on a joyous note of way into the future. Rapid technical changes. Bad news, and then also good news. So, chapters 1 and 2 were filled with death, destruction, deportation. Now beginning in verse 12, it's an upbeat And you're going to see this, I want you to mark it, because you see this in chapters 3 through 5, the second message, and 6 and 7 as well. Though there's more promises as we get further along in the book. So there's a theme of death, destruction, deportation, but also 
deliverance. And the deliverance is because of a deliverer. This last week when I flew out to Southern California, my brother had called me Monday morning and said, you better get out here. I said, well, Rick, I was just out there. He said, no, you better come. It doesn't look like mom has much time. So when I got there Monday, he stopped me at the door and he said, now, you saw mom two weeks ago. And she was up and she was smiling and she was talking. And when you see her now, you're going to see a different person. So be prepared. Well, I'm a pastor. I've been around a lot of situations like this. I've been around a lot of death. I've watched a lot of people die. But this was very different. When it's your own relative, your own mother, your own child, or whatever. So when I walked in Monday evening into my mom's bedroom, I saw somebody who had deteriorated rapidly. Barely able to open her eyes, barely able to say a word, barely able to move her hands. When I came in and I said, Mom, it's Skip, I'm here, she waved her hand and she said hello, just one or two words at a time. I said, can I get you anything? She said, ice. So I was able to scoop little chunks of ice into her mouth to keep her cool. That evening, I could tell that already her breathing was labored. And through the night, we woke up several times. Tuesday morning, we just knew today's the day. And as nurses came in and hospice came in, they said, today's the day. So as John Miller shared this weekend, I was able to be at her bedside Tuesday and uh, stroking her hand, stroking her hair, telling her that uh, we love her. And I said, Mom, Jesus loves you. And she immediately went, To be able to watch a person at a very difficult time, not only for her but for us, in the midst of death, in the midst of deterioration and destruction, to have the hope that in just a little while, after this death, there's going to be deliverance. Because the deliverer will say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's such a comfort and such a hope. So I watched her breathe her last breath. And we closed her eyes. And I just imagined, right after that last breath on earth, that her next breath in glory must have been not, but, wow! Look at this place. Check it out. It was worth it. Well, that's what the prophet wants to get the people to realize. Destruction is coming. Deportation is coming. Death is coming. It's going to be horrible for the nation. But in the latter days, Messiah's glorious reign, the Deliverer. So, in... Chapter 2, verse 12. I promised that we would look at it. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. 
The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Now all of this imagery, can you see it? Is shepherd imagery. It's a shepherd leading them. It's, a, it's someone who walks on a path and breaks through or breaks open is the language. When shepherds would watch flocks, there was sometimes a shepherd known as the breaker who would go before the sheep, especially where the foliage had grown up, and would clear the path, mow it down, take away the debris, so that the sheep could follow the one who breaks open, or the breaker, the shepherd who clears the debris and makes the path. So here is a picture of a ruler who is going to come, but this ruler is like a shepherd, gentle, gathering the flock, gathering the fold together. One who will reign over them with a just rule, a just reign. This is the shepherd king. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And he spoke about leading out his flock. So, you might look at it this way. Here we are looking past the captivity of Babylon, past the Assyrian threat which was imminent, past all of history into the future when Messiah will reign, regathering the Jews together because... Yeah, some of this was fulfilled after they were in captivity 70 years, but the whole story wouldn't fit this picture until the millennial kingdom, which is yet future. So it's a picture of Messiah gathering like a shepherd his people, ruling and reigning, the one who reconciled them, brought them back in the land, and it says, the king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. You know in the book of Revelation that in the midst of terrible times, 144,000 Jewish people from different tribes scattered abroad will be brought back into their land, getting ready for the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Now notice something in our text. I will surely, verse 12, assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Now you will notice in the Bible that oftentimes when God addresses Israel in a backslidden state, God doesn't refer to them as Israel, but as Jacob. And both names are given here. All of Jacob, backslidden Israel, and the remnant of Israel. Israel is often a name applied to God's covenant people. Jacob is a name given to his backslidden people. And you remember that Jacob and Israel were the same person, right? But Jacob, the very name means heel catcher, or one who causes somebody to stumble, to trip. And when he came out of the womb, he had grabbed his brother's heel, and they looked at it and said, heel catcher. And it fit him perfectly, because he was a deceiving conniver his whole life. But his name was changed to Israel, victorious warrior, or one who fights victoriously with God. So often, though, God will say, I know you in your heart. I know your backslidden ways, Jacob. But I also have a plan for the remnant of Israel. That's a very important word. It's mentioned six times in the book of Micah. It's mentioned 85 times in the Old Testament. The prophets speak about a remnant, and I'll bring that up again in a little bit. Now into chapter 3. 
Another rapid technical change. The camera pans from going out into the future and the millennial kingdom back to the very present and the present threat. And I said, Here now, so there's the second message beginning, Here now, listen up, O heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? One of the great things about the American form of government is what we call the balance of power. I know that there's no government on earth that is perfect, but ours is as good as it gets. Because we have a balance of power, we have three branches of government. We have the executive branch. We have the legislative branch. We have the judicial branch. And all three are meant to keep each other in check to provide checks and balances. So you've got the executive branch of the government headed up by the President of the United States, and he can come up with a plan or a proposal or a bill. However, the legislative branch, Congress, may decide not to fund the bill or to amend it or to not approve it. So they will keep in check the executive branch. The legislative branch can enact and empower laws to be brought forth in our country. But there's a third branch, the judicial branch, headed by the Supreme Court. And Supreme Court justices can declare certain laws as unconstitutional. So you have all three forms of government checking each other out. Now, it would seem that maybe the judicial branch is stacked. They've got the ultimate authority. However, it's the president in the executive branch who can appoint Supreme Court justices. But they have to be ratified and appointed by the legislative branch. And the legislative branch from time to time can declare those officers of the court and or even the president of the United States unfit for office and can impeach. So, years ago, there were problems with the executive branch of our government. Illegal spying and a cover-up attempt called Watergate with President Richard Nixon. The legislative branch kept that in check by a thorough investigation and the impeachment of the President of the United States. Just a few years ago, the House of Representatives found President Bill Clinton guilty and impeached him as president on four counts, including perjury. So you can see we have a government that keeps each other in check. But what happens if all three branches of government are equally corrupt? Oh, you got huge, huge problems. Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, had big problems. Three branches of government were all corrupt. Now, their branches of government were the judicial branch, the spiritual branch, because they were an integrated theocracy, as well as the legislative branch. All of the political, spiritual, and judicial entities were all corrupt caused big problems. All three will be mentioned in this chapter. Which brings up a scripture. In Psalm 11, the psalmist asked this question. If the foundations 
are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The word foundation means the foundations of government, of state. What if you live in a society that has a corrupt government? What can the righteous do? Well, luckily in our culture, we can vote in new leaders. But usually we vote in new leaders and we're not satisfied with them, so we think the answer is in the next leader or the other party, and then we try that. Oh, maybe it's the other party. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I'll tell you what I do. I've stopped trusting in government. The ultimate form of government is a dictatorship, a benevolent dictatorship. It's when God rules. It is a theocracy. Because it will be proven in the millennial kingdom when Jesus sets up shop on earth and He rules, the Bible says, with a rod of iron, every single law, every single decision will be perfectly righteous. So, I vote. And I believe everybody should vote. I get involved. I believe everybody should get involved. But I find myself becoming less a Republican or a Democrat and more of a theocrat. Every election I think, I can't wait for Jesus Christ to return. (laughs) This world's a mess. And it was a mess back then. And Micah shows you how bad it was. First of all, corruption in the courts. The heads, verse 1. The rulers. It says, Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones? They were judicial cannibals. Here they were. Their job was to defend the victims, help the poor, help those who had been victimized by a crime. They made it worse. They cared, it seemed, more about the rights of the criminal than the victim. Sound familiar? You know there are more lawyer jokes than probably any other professional joke out there. And that's the whole point, isn't it? There shouldn't be. If anyone should be known for keeping and upholding the letter of the law, justice and righteousness, it should be the legal profession. I'm not going to go into it and try to indict it because I realize several in our fellowship are in the legal profession. I'm glad you're there. Now, I'm glad I'm not there, but I am glad you are there, and I pray for you. And especially if you're a judge, seriously, let us know who you are. We want to pray for you continually. You have the roughest job. Who also eat the flesh of my people, verse 3. Flay their skin from them, break their bones, chop them in pieces like meat for the pot and like flesh for the cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will even hide His face from them at this time. So you can see what's happening. The very ones who were to stand up for justice were the ones who had perverted justice. And so with a twist of irony, the prophet says, when you are going through your needy time and you cry out to the judge of the earth, he's going to treat you like you've treated them. He's not going to hear you. You haven't heard the victims. God won't hear you when you cry. Captivity will come. 
because, the end of verse 4, they have been evil in their deeds. So that's corruption in the courts, the prophet speaks about. Now beginning in verse 5, corruption among the clergy. This is that spiritual arm of the ancient theocracy of Israel. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, you shall have night without vision. You won't be able to see as a prophet should. You shall have darkness without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, the diviners shall be abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Now, you know, the church or God's people, let's broaden it out and say God's people at this time, but in specific, the church has always suffered from two dangers. Number one, wolves from the outside, false prophets from the inside. It's always been something the church has had to be wary of and to fight against. When Paul the Apostle was leaving back to Jerusalem and stopped on the shores of Miletus to meet with the elders of Ephesus, he poured out his heart and he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I know that as soon as I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing this flock. And also, from among your own selves, evil, perverse men will rise up, trying to lead people astray, taking disciples after themselves. In other words, they'll come in and they'll have the right speech, but they'll have an agenda. They had an agenda back then. The prophets of Israel were, by and large, in Micah's day, false prophets. Oh, and by the way, it's interesting to note that Paul the Apostle in the New Testament named false prophets publicly. You know, it's funny that today, if you were to mention the false prophets on certain television programs, on certain networks, and you were to name them by name, you would be scolded by the average church person. How dare you do that? That's unloving. Actually, it's quite loving. Because anytime you have poison on the shelf, it's good to mark it as such. Rather than say aspirin, it's good to say poison. Because otherwise, somebody might swallow the wrong stuff, and it could kill them. So you find that in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says things like this. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, There are false prophets and those who err. Among them... Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have erred concerning the resurrection, saying that it's already passed. Now, how would you like to be named in the Bible so that forever and ever, every generation sees your name as a bad guy? A couple chapters later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. May God reward him according to his deeds. Whoa! Now why did Paul do that? Because he wanted to warn the flock that Timothy was the pastor of that these guys were among them. Watch out! They're trying to lead people astray. And so Micah points the finger at these prophets, the spiritual branch of the government of that theocracy. Now the third part in verse 9, 
is not corruption of the courts, not corruption of the clergy per se, but I'm calling it corruption with collusion. That is all three branches. The politicians, the clergymen, and the judges all together were working together and corrupt. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come to us, when in fact great harm is about to come to them. It's always amazed me over the years to see how certain believers who attend and are committed to abusive churches will stay in that setting. Uh, Even though leadership will manipulate, rip off, connive, that they'll allow themselves to be kept under that thumb. Um, Several years ago, a few of us were in Scotland doing a little bit of a musical outreach and some preaching. And I was at this one church one evening. It was a a church that was famous in the area for sort of a heavy-handed apostolic authoritarianism. And I was warned by some, oh, you don't want to go there. And they told me, and I said, well, they've invited us. We'd like to come and just share the love of Christ. So we did. Well, at the end of the night, the pastor got up and told all these people, we're going to take an offering. You need to give deeply and sacrificially so that you can give your money to this group who has come. They're missionaries giving the good news. And I didn't want him to do this, but he just went on for several minutes telling this small, poor congregation they needed to give. So they took up the offering, and the pastor gave me this sack of all this Scottish money. I don't know what it is, the pound. So I had several pounds. And I took the bag, and I looked at the pastor, and in the front of the congregation I said, We are so thankful that you did this. And so thankful that you love the work, as you said, of missionaries. And I noticed that in the back of the church, the the entire band noticed that you support missionaries in other countries. Would you do us the great honor of taking this money and applying it to their mission budgets? See, we're already sent out. Our expenses are covered. We're here as a gift. We want to give the Lord's love to you free of charge. And we know that you have missionaries in this church that could really use this and would love it. And you could just see this wave of ah, relief come over the faces of the people because now they saw this is something worthy. This is something good to give to. Well, Micah goes on to say in verse 12, Therefore, because of you, because of you, because of you leaders, because of you spiritual, judicial, and political leaders, notice this, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Figuratively and literally, Mount Zion and the country outside around Judea and the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. It's sad, really, to read this. Because, you know, at one time, Israel was one nation under God, wasn't it? 
What was in the very center of the camp of Israel? Do you remember? The tabernacle. I heard somebody say it. There was that tent structure of the tabernacle. And all the camps were in four groups around the tabernacle where God was worshipped. And they were making a visual statement by that. God is number one. He deserves first place in our community. It's very similar to uh, European communities. What's in the middle of those ancient towns? A steeple, a church. Steeple and a cross rising up to heaven. It was a statement that in the center of our community, God is worshipped. At one time in our country, and I have to underline that, at one time it was that way. Our money still says in God we trust. The truth is we don't. We, we use the same language like the false prophets. God is with us because we say, you know, it's on our currency or it's in certain documents. But more and more, I know you're noticing this, we are reinterpreting our own history. I've heard people say, well, our founding fathers didn't really believe in God, the God of the Bible, or in Christ specifically. They were all deists, and they believed in some generic God. Well, that's a reinterpretation of the facts. And it's very similar to this country. That the leadership is causing the people to turn away from God so that the conditions become like the conditions just before God judged His people. Now let me read this to you. And you tell me if this is some generic, unidentified, nonspecific God. This is from 1620. Our founding fathers, this is called the Mayflower Compact, begins, In the name of God, amen, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, we do solemnly and mutually combine ourselves together. That's the document of our fathers. 1643, the Constitution of New England Whereas we all come to these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. And then our own Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created. I guess that means we need a creator to do that. Created equal. And we're endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Read the documents. Read the words of the Founding Fathers. It was a, for the most part, Christ-centered beginning. But have we strayed from that? And Israel has. Now, if that were the end of the story, what a bleak ending it would be. Gratefully, after chapter 3 is chapter 4. Gratefully, right after it says, Zion will be plowed like a field, after a denunciatory note comes a conciliatory note. Notice, after Jerusalem will be ruins, what it says in chapter... Well, let's finish chapter 3. In the mountain of the temple, like the bare hills of the forest. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways. We will walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law will go forth, and the word of the Lord 
from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations from afar. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds exactly like the second chapter of Isaiah, doesn't it? In fact, it is identical to Isaiah chapter 2. The wording is word for word. It's Isaiah chapter 2. Which causes us to ask this question. Who copied from who? Who cheated on the test and used the other guy's notes? We ask the question because if you remember, Micah and Isaiah lived at the same time. They were contemporaries. Their messages were similar and they knew each other. So maybe you think, oh, you know, I get it now. Isaiah was a little lazy that day and he heard Micah say it and he goes, I like that. Can I use that? Or maybe Micah was a little off that day and he heard what Isaiah said and thought, he's a major prophet. I'm a minor prophet. I'll look really good if I include this. I prefer to see neither as the explanation. I prefer to see it as this being so monumental, so important, that independently the Holy Spirit gave the same message to both. Because He knew it was so important. And it is. The promise, the announcement of judgment, followed by the assurance of messianic blessing. Yep. Zion will be plowed. Yep, Jerusalem will be destroyed. But in the latter days, it says, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. Now that term in verse 1, the latter times, is a technical phrase. It's used 21 times in the Bible, and it refers to an era that will eventually lead to the Messiah coming and taking over and reigning from Jerusalem. Spiritually and politically, the Messiah will reign from Israel, from Jerusalem. It will be established on the top of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. In the Bible, you'll notice on a couple of different occasions, the metaphor, the idiom of a mountain, sometimes refers to a literal hill, Sometimes it's a figurative expression. In this case, it's both. Zion is a hill, a mountain. But this is also a figurative expression. Mountain or hill is sometimes a word that describes a kingdom. Remember Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had that weird dream at night of that image made out of metal, head of gold and uh, iron and then bronze and then, uh, or excuse me, gold, silver, bronze and then iron and feet of iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar saw this. Then he saw a rock come out of heaven, crush that statue to powder, the wind blow all of the remnant of it away, and the rock grew into a mountain that covered the whole earth. And he was so spooked by that dream, so freaked out. And Daniel said, let me tell you what that means. You're the head of gold. All right, he thought. Someone finally recognizes, I am number one. But, Daniel said, you're going to be followed by an inferior kingdom, the chest of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. That will be in turn followed by another lesser kingdom, 
represented by the belly and thighs of brass, the kingdom of Greece. That will be followed by another inferior kingdom to that, the legs of iron. And finally, in the end days, the latter times, the last days, there will be a coalition of ten nations related to the previous kingdom of Rome, but separate nations that tie together and form a coalition, a world-governing coalition. In the days of those kings, said Daniel, the God of heaven will destroy all of the kingdoms of man, and he will establish his kingdom that will reign over the whole earth. So the mountain was a picture of God's supreme control. And so here in the vision of this prophet Micah and the prophet Isaiah, a very similar vision. Verse 2, he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. Let me put it to you this way. The day is coming when you're going to go to Jerusalem. You say, oh, I've always wanted to go. I've always wanted to take a tour, but it's so expensive. Save your money. It'll be free. Now, the flip side of that is it's nice to have a reference of what it used to look like before you see the new one. I'll have that advantage. I go, oh boy, this place looks so different. I remember when this was over there and that didn't even exist. And now look at it. But year by year, Zechariah will tell us, we are going to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. All the redeemed will be there. We'll be in the presence of God. We're going to see Jesus. He will teach us His ways. We're not going to need Bibles. We're going to hear directly from the Lord in those days as He gives to us His standard, His principles. And we'll just sit under His teaching. You won't have to come to a Wednesday night Bible study. You'll be able to hear Jesus just eye to eye. You'll see Him as He is. He will judge between many peoples, rebuke strong nations after Him. And then interesting verse in verse 3. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That is written above the door of the United Nations in New York City. This verse. Looking forward to the day when there will be freedom from war, when the implements of war will not be used anymore because we'll use them for life, not death. But that can never happen until the word of the Lord comes forth from Jerusalem by the Messiah. So, bottom line, there can be no peace till the Prince of Peace occupies this place. When he occupies this place, then there will be freedom of war, freedom from want, freedom from fear. For it says in verse 4, Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That's a picture of prosperity. No one will make them afraid. They'll have no fear. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Great promise, glorious promise. A reconstituted Israel, a restored people brought back into their land for a thousand years, ruling and reigning Jesus Christ from Mount Zion. But before that can happen... The Jews have to be regathered back to their land before there can be any messianic blessing. So the next verses apply to that. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted 
I will make the lame, now notice this again, a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Blessing is promised. Judgment was promised and is promised beginning in verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city and you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go, there you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So we're working toward the end times backward. He sees the ultimate glory of Zion. Before there can be the ultimate glory of Zion, there has to be the regathering of the Jews in their land. Way before the ingathering of the Jews in their land, there will be in the immediate, a tribulation of sorts, a captivity into Assyria, and then finally into Babylon. So he's beginning with the ultimate and then working his way back from glorious down to really bad in the ultimate or in the immediate future before we get to ultimate glory. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand His counsel. For He will gather them like the sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So he covers a lot of history in this prophecy. I've got bad news. I've got good news. In chapter 1, he begins with the bad news, ends with the good news. Chapter 3, there's also the mixture, bad, bad, and then really good. So he begins in chapter 4 with, though Zion will be plowed like a field, as I said in chapter 3, let me tell you ultimately how it's going to be. If you haven't figured it out by now, or up till now, I hope that after tonight you'll see this. God's plan for the earth centers around His Messiah and a piece of real estate known as Israel. Paul will later on ask, has God cast away his people? God forbid. And for three chapters, he reiterates the promises of the Old Testament that God will make, fulfill his covenant to the Jewish nation. Jerusalem, according to the Bible, is the geographic center of the world. I know that breaks a lot of your hearts because you were always taught America was the center of the world, right? All the maps that we were given as children, America's right in the middle. Well, according to the Bible, Jerusalem is the center of the world. You know how I know that? 
Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, God says, See, I have set Jerusalem in the midst, in the middle, right in the center of all of the nations around her. So you might say, Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth, biblically. Something else to note. Jerusalem is the spiritual, or no, excuse me, salvation center of the earth, spiritually. There's only one place God ever paid for the sins of mankind, and that wasn't in Los Angeles, or in New York, or in Rome. But just outside a gate in Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha, your sins and my sins were paid for just outside of Jerusalem. And what did Jesus say to the woman of Samaria? They worshipped in their own capacity, in their own way. Jesus said, You worship what you know not. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth, biblically. The salvation center of the earth, spiritually. We also know it's the storm center of the earth, prophetically. All of the prophecies that we have been reading and will read from the prophet Daniel all the way up to Zechariah talk about the horrible time coming upon the Jews. Every modern politician knows that a riot that happens in Rio de Janeiro is not as significant as one that happens in Jerusalem. They're sitting on a powder keg over in the Middle East, and everybody knows it. It's the storm center of the earth, prophetically. So... Geographic center biblically, salvation center spiritually, storm center prophetically, but Jerusalem is also the glory center of the earth ultimately. When Jesus comes back, he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. It divides in two, and Jesus will set up his throne, not in Los Angeles, not in New York, not in Rome, but in Jerusalem for a thousand years. You know why he'll do that? Simply because he made a promise to Abraham. And he made a promise to David and to Solomon. And all of the promises God made to his people in the Old Testament that have not yet been fulfilled, God will fulfill it. To show that he's capable of not only making a promise, but keeping it. So, it's as if he says, I've got bad news for you. But I've got not just good news, really good news. Great news. Ultimately, the glory will reside here. Did you know that in the Talmud, the Jews have many sayings. Let me give you a few of them. One saying is this. God has given to the world ten measures of beauty. Nine of them he placed in Jerusalem. And one he distributed to the rest of the world. Now, when you go over and see Jerusalem, you say, I dispute that. That's what the Talmud says. They have another saying. God has distributed to the world ten measures of knowledge. Nine he placed in Jerusalem, and one he distributed to the rest of the world. That I don't dispute, because most of the Nobel Prize winners historically have been Jewish. But they say something else. God has given to the world ten measures of suffering. Nine of them he placed in Jerusalem. One he placed and distributed around the world. 
That is also true. If you know the history of this nation, no nation has been as occupied by foreign powers, persecuted by other nations, destroyed 30-plus times, but they've risen again. In the 1940s, there was a radio program called Baby Snooks. Not that I would remember that. (laughs) So you go, boy, he is really old. It's something I've been told. Baby Snooks was a radio program weekly that highlighted a, a little girl named Snooks. She was a brat. She complained and howled and got whatever she wanted. One day, Snooks, this little girl, stole candy from a candy store. She was caught. Her dad punished her, made her go to the store owner and apologize and make any kind of amends. The store owner forgave the little girl. And then, just to show favor, he said to the little girl, Come here. Reach your little hand in that candy jar, take a fistful of candy and go home. Just for good measure. She said, No. Well, go ahead. It's free. I won't do it. Finally, the man himself reached into the candy jar, got a handful and gave it to her. On the way home, the little girl's father said, Now, honey, I know you. Why didn't you reach your little hand when the man was going to give you free candy and take the candy? She said, I know that if I refuse, that he would put his hand and give it to me, and his hand is a lot bigger than my hand. (laughs) You know what I've discovered? God's hand is a lot bigger than my hand. A lot bigger than your hand. Some of us have trouble forgiving someone in our family. God's already forgiven them. Some of you are hard and legalistic and won't budge. When God is so gracious, His hand is so much bigger. And I would rather get whatever blessing God wants to give me than for me to prescribe it on my own. And so Israel had their little box. God is with us. We rely upon Him. Surely His favor is with us, these false prophets were saying, when God had so much more than they were even predicting. I wonder what God has for each of you this week, this month, this year. I wonder what God wants to do in you and through you. Well, we get to observe that. We get to see that. We get to watch the unfolding grace of God in each of our lives. But allow God's blessing, allow God's big hand of blessing to overshadow any prescription you might have. Now, I always bite off more than I can chew, and I wanted to go through chapter 5 tonight. But that's going to have to wait. And uh, chapter 5 is great because it's all about not only the deliverance, but the deliverer and where he's going to be born. It's one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible quoted in the New Testament in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up, but we're out of time. But we got more time next time, so let's pray this time. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we think of so many promises in your word. 
some of them wonderful, some of them not so good. We think of these predictions of a captivity and a judgment. And our heart breaks because we can just imagine the kind of destruction that these people suffered. In part to purge them, in part to get their attention, in part to bring repentance, but always with the ultimate design to bring blessing. Always to extend your big hand of blessing, which is so much bigger than ours. So, Lord, we apply that. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would shower upon us your favor, whatever you decide, whatever you desire. We're your kids. And we're just open to whatever, however, trusting your hand bigger than ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.